uh, here. I'm also attending Covenant Theological Seminary online, working on my Master's of Divinity and Pastoral Counseling. Um, yeah, my name's Josiah. I'll let you try to figure out how to say my last name. It's in the bulletin. If you want a challenge, go ahead and give that a try. Um, but for now, uh, will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're continuing our study in the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear this God's word. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, once again, we thank you that our children get to hear your word. We thank you that we get to hear your word. Would you remind us that we're not here by accident, that we didn't come here by uh, happenstance, but that actually you've called us, that all of our life you've been leading us towards yourself. Thank you that you have called us here today to sing, to praise, to hear your word. Pray that our hearts will be open to receive it today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the year 1628, the Swedish warship Vasa set sail on its maiden voyage. This is a phenomenal, impressive ship. It had an unprecedented 64 bronze cannons on board. It was filled with intricate artwork. All the wood on the outside is beautifully designed. You can actually look at it. It's online, the Vasa warship. And not 1,500 yards into its maiden voyage, it sank. Straight down. And so um, this was the pride and joy of the king of Sweden. This was meant to really show how great Sweden was as a nation, how great he was as a king. So they start to do investigations like, what? how could this possibly happen? Well, they couldn't figure out a thing until hundreds of years later, it was rediscovered um, in, or I think, 1960s or so. And years after that, there was a, one of the people who work at the museum where the ship is now housed. He was doing some investigation and he found something interesting. Here's what he found. While examining the ship, Hawker, the archaeologist who works at the museum, discovered four rulers that the workmen had used. Those rulers were based on different standards of measurements at the time. Two were in Swedish feet, which were divided into 12 inches. The other two were in Amsterdam feet, which had 11 inches in a foot. So each carpenter had used his own system of measurement. And so we can kind of see where things went off there. I mean, they had an incredible unity in the way that they built the ship. They had one boss who had this grand vision of this beautiful warship. He knew what he wanted. There were 400 craftsmen working together on this thing. And yet, there's this little bit of disunity, one inch, one inch difference that caused the difference between success and failure, between life and death. And so it is in the church. One little bit of disunity, one little argument, one little thing can cause the destruction of our witness for Christ. It can tear a church apart. Now, Philippians is called the letter of joy, rightly so, uh, because the Greek words for joy or rejoice are used 16 times in just these short, uh, these short four chapters, 16 times. It's a letter of joy. However, even in this letter of joy, we see the beginnings of some storm clouds on the horizon. One, the fact that Paul took so much expense of ink and papyrus to address the issue of unity, to tell these people that they needed to be unified, kind of gives us a hint that it was needed. And second, in chapter 4, verse 2, we see two specific people Paul calls out and tells them, 
hey, listen, encourage these two people to agree in the Lord. We don't know the exact details, but again, we know that it was needed because Paul said it. And so the point is, however small or large, disunity in the church can destroy the church. So our question today is how can we avoid disunity? But because surely we're called to more than just avoiding disunity, how can we actually pursue gospel unity? What does that look like? How do we actually pursue it? And so three points there in your bulletin there, what we're given to pursue gospel unity, what we're to do to pursue gospel unity, and what makes it possible? What makes gospel unity possible? So uh, look back with me at our text, chapter two, look at verse one. Our, our, Our passage begins with these four conditional phrases. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, do this thing. So these are the four conditions. Now, the first thing to note when we read this is that Paul's not doubting the presence of these realities among the Philippians. He's not saying, I mean, if you got these things, if they're there, I'm not really sure. He's not wondering. He's kind of using a rhetorical device to make a point. So, for example, if I say this, if there is love for the children of this church, teach your children God's word. What am I saying? Well, obviously, I know all of you, I think. I've seen you with your children. You love them. There's a deep care for the love of the children of this church. I'm not in any way doubting that you love your children, that there's love in this church for the children. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm pointing out that love has a purpose. Love has a goal. And that is to to grow them up in Christ, to teach them God's word. And so in the same way, Paul here isn't doubting, well, I don't know if there's any participation in the spirit. I don't know if there's any comfort from love. He's saying, if there is any of these things which I know that there are, since there are these things, do this. And so what is Paul's purpose here? To show them what it looks like to have gospel unity. And so let's take a closer look here. We see five, uh, one commentator calls them five incentives for gospel unity. We have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, and affection and sympathy. So first, encouragement in Christ. Now when we think about encouragement, Um, encouragement isn't just like these empty phrases, these meaning platitudes, like, oh, you you got this. Good job. You can think of maybe like a parent sitting on the sidelines at a softball game, kind of scrolling through Facebook, eating a hot dog, like, oh, the kid's up to bat. Oh, you you got this. Good job. Good job. Like, that's not the encouragement in Christ that Paul is talking about here. This is a specific, this is a coming alongside, an encouragement, a consolation, something that actually builds people up. Now, it helps here to remember the situation of Paul. He's in prison. He's been thrown in there unjustly. He's suffering. People are mocking him and scorning him. And not only this, but we read last week in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, For it has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, a suffering church doesn't need puffing up. Uh, A suffering church doesn't need, good job, you got this. A suffering church needs encouragement, needs building up, needs to be reminded that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Needs to be reminded that I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the encouragement we need, that we're not alone, that no matter what comes our way, we have God's love. And that leads us to the comfort that we have from love. Because there is no greater comfort, no greater comfort than knowing the love of God. 
I know that sounds like a really preachery thing to say, like, okay, yeah, no comfort, whatever. But really, what does that mean that there's no greater comfort than knowing the love of God? Well, first, God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-controlling, sovereign God of the universe. Nothing is outside of his power. Nothing is outside of his view. Not only that, but God is also totally good. And all that he does is totally good. And then taking these two together, we're told that all things work together for the good of those who love God, which, by the way, we know that only those who love God are the ones who have been loved by God. We love because he first loved us and are called according to his purpose. So putting that all together, what does that mean? What's the comfort? The comfort is that God is sovereign. He's in control. He sees everything that's happening in your life. And because he loves you, it's all working for good. You can have comfort that no matter what suffering you face, no matter what trial you're going through, he can actually turn it around. Even the worst things in your life, you can have the comfort that God is working them together for good. Those very things that you feel like are destroying you, he can turn around and actually use to build you up and to make you strong in Christ. But the thing is, that's hard to remember at times, especially when we're suffering, which is why it's good news that we have the fellowship or the participation in the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus in John 15 calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete which means it's the same word basically that we see for encouragement in Christ. It means uh, one who comes alongside, one who encourages, one who builds up, one who comforts, one who consoles. So we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, the one who comforts us. He's with us eternally. And I think sometimes it can be tempting to think of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force, right? Like Star Wars, may the force be with you. That we can kind of use the Holy Spirit for power and to do really cool signs and wonders and things like that. But the Holy Spirit is not just some impersonal force, not just some power source. But the Holy Spirit is actually a person. And he's actually a person who's with you, who can actually communicate to you the encouragement in Christ, who can communicate to you the comfort that we have from the love of God. He's a person with whom we have fellowship unending, uninterrupted until that day when we reach heaven. And that's good news. And finally, we have affection and sympathy, which can also be translated affections and mercies. And indeed, I think mercies is actually a very good translation because Paul is doing something similar here in Philippians that he does in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, we have chapters 1 through 11 that are kind of discussing the good news of the gospel. He goes heavy into doctrine of what Jesus did to save us, how God reconciled us, just like we have in uh, verse 1 here, encouragement in Christ, comfort and love, participation in the Spirit. And then in chapter 12, he kind of switches and he says, so in view of the mercies of God, in view of all these mercies, these beautiful things that God has done, do this. And we see a very similar thing here happening. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the spirit, in view of these affections of God towards you, in view of these mercies, I want you to do something. Which leads us to our second point. What? What we're to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, again, the gospel reminders in verse 1 are given to us for our comfort and for our joy. However, they're also given to us that we might live differently, that we might think differently. So now, uh, quickly take note again. We, we need to remember the context again that Paul's in prison. He's suffering. We need to remember again that Philippians is the letter of joy. So what, what's this joy all about? He says here, complete my joy, right? That's part of this command is complete my joy. How does he say to do that? Well, he says, be of one mind. Let's take a look at the things he rejoices in. He rejoices in the Philippians' partnership with himself. He rejoices in the proclamation of Christ. 
He rejoices in the solidness of the faith of the Philippians. He rejoices in the care that the Philippians showed towards him. But all of these come together in this one command. Those things are good that give him joy. Now he's saying, take all of this, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Again, he's in prison. He's suffering. And what's on his mind? The unity of the church. He's suffering. His greatest joy, he doesn't say, complete my joy by petitioning the governor to let me out of here. Complete my joy by bringing me things so I can be comfortable in prison. Complete my joy by coming and breaking me out of here. And he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, by thinking the same thing. Now, we need to think about, uh, I'm thinking about, as I thought about this myself, I was thinking, if I were in prison, if I were, you know, suffering in prison, would the very first thing be on my mind, would the very first thing be your unity? If I were suffering, if I were locked up, if I were in prison, would I be thinking about how well all of you are getting along? Probably not, honestly. <laughs> so this message is very much for me as much as it is for everyone else. You know, it's one of those things that we need to think about and challenge ourselves. If we're in prison, are we this passionate about the unity of the church? And so at this point, we kind of need to take a step back and say, well, what kind of unity is it that Paul is talking about? Because there are lots of things to be unified about. There are lots of groups out there on Facebook that you can all agree and like all the posts and everything. So what kind of unity? Well, help me out here. By a show of hands, who prefers Coke over Pepsi? Okay. All right. Show of hands. Pepsi over Coke. Whoa, we're not looking good. All right. Here's, here's a big one, okay? Forgive me for this. Who prefers cats over dogs? <laughs> Okay, who prefers dogs over cats? All right, are we in trouble here? We're not in unity. We are not unified. Now, here, what is Paul asking here? Is he saying that the dog people should come to their senses and realize cats are the superior pets? Is that what Paul is saying? I'm kidding. I'm, sorry. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. All pets are a gift from God except snakes. Um, no, but Paul is not saying that we should be unified in thinking about our opinion about cats or dogs, about you know, the type of preaching we prefer about this or that. He's not saying we agree about these secondary, unimportant things. In fact, he's not even saying that we need to agree just about what we believe in our doctrine. He's not saying that's the focal point. He's not saying it's just about agreeing in what we're doing either. Uh, just uh, kind of a story about this. I used to work a number of years ago at a Christian bookstore, and there was this couple that would come in often. Um, husband and wife, they'd come in, and the wife was just the sweetest lady in the world, and she came up to me one day and asked, hey, you know, um, I'm looking for this book. Can you help me find that? So I said, oh, yes, absolutely. It's right over here. As I'm leading her, her husband is kind of giving her a hard time and teasing her. Oh, those are the light and fluffy books. Oh, you're not going to get anything real deep out of those. And so he asks me for another book that's deep and that's good and that goes into the scriptures. I'm like, okay, all right, fine. They come back up after. And as they're coming to pay, the man is starting to kind of dicker with me about getting discounts. Now, I'm not a manager. I can't give that much a discount. Um, so after a while, after he couldn't get the discount he wanted, he slammed the books down. He berated me for about a minute straight. And then he walks out saying, I'm never coming back to this store again. Whew. Yeah. Um, now, here's the crazy thing, right? Those books that he slammed down that he was going to buy, they were great books. In fact, if this guy and I had sat down and talked about doctrine, we probably would have agreed on every point. We probably would have been able to, you know, we probably would have picked out the same books, would have agreed on all these controversial doctrines. And yet, that wasn't enough to stop a wedge from driving between us. That wasn't enough to stop him from berating me and belittling me and separating us in fellowship. 
Now, on the other side, I, also, I used to work for a missions organization that did trips to Haiti. Um, do, you know, trips like pouring cement, building fences, painting buildings, that sort of a thing. And I can remember the president of the organization used to talk about how in all the years of bringing people down, he never had one doctrinal disagreement. He brought down Catholics and Protestants. He brought down believers and unbelievers. He brought down Presbyterians and Baptists, Charismatics and Cessationists. Never once, oh, at one time, one time, there was an argument about doctrine. Do you know why there was never an argument about doctrine? That's right. There was, there was no gospel. Because no one talked about who Jesus Christ was. No one talked about what he accomplished in his life and death. No one talked about who God was or what he desires or commands of men. No one talked about who the Holy Spirit was and how he assists us in our life, how he gives us power. No one talked about those things. So, of course, there was no disagreement. Neither of these things, neither doctrine or good works alone are sufficient to bring about the kind of unity that Paul is urging us onto here. So, again, I know we're just kind of building this up, right? Okay, so what kind of unity is it? Well, let's look together at verses 3 and 4. Here, we've been talking about the gospel. We've been talking about what Christ has done. Now it's kind of a switch to, okay, now what do we do about it? Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, there's obviously some things to do there, right? There's some real practical hands-on, do this, don't do that, do this. However, if you take a closer look, you'll notice something. There's nothing specific in there. He doesn't give us a specific list. Make sure you get together once a week with a family from church. Make sure you evangelize at least twice a week. Make sure that you have a spiritual conversation every day. Right? He doesn't give us these kind of specific things that I think we so desire, right? Because if there's a list of things, I can check them off and, and I've done my duty. He doesn't give us that list of things for us to check off and feel good about ourselves. What does he give us? He gives us a mindset. He gives us a way to do the things that we do every day. He's not saying just, okay, make sure that you buy at least one person dinner this week. He's saying, when you go to buy food, think about your brothers and sisters. Consider them. He's not saying, oh, make sure that you reach out, you know, every, at least once a day to someone in church. He's saying that when you're sitting on your phone, you know, if you're just sitting on your couch, just relaxing, think about, hey, can I reach out to, can I encourage, can I shoot a text? Can I call so-and-so and build them up and encourage? He's saying in everything that you do, consider others more significant than yourselves. Think about them before you think about yourself. Now, can we be honest? with ourselves and say that that's pretty much impossible, if not completely impossible, right? Who has ever lived a day in their life where from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, they've been just thinking only about others. They haven't thought about themselves at all. They've been living just solely for the sake of others. Who's done that? All right, so we are being honest. That's good. <laughs> so then we need to ask ourselves, why is Paul asking to, us to do this? What makes this possible? And there are two things that enable us, two things that give us power to be able to live in a selfless, sacrificial way. And that's the example of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. So first, the example of Christ. Next week, 
Um, Lord willing, we'll gather again, and Troy will lead us through verses 5 through 11, which is a beautiful passage of Scripture. But for now, would you look with me at verses 5 through 8? We're going to dive in just just for a moment. Verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, did you catch the parallel there to our passage? Right at the beginning of verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Exact same verb as set your mind on the same thing. Be of one mind. Exact same verb. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So again, we see kind of Paul's narrowing still what it looks like to be unified. It's not just to be unified in love, not just to be unified in sacrificial service or selflessness, but it's to be unified in the mind of Christ, who had the ultimate mind of self-sacrificing love and service towards others. Think about it. He left the comfort and the joys of heaven He left the daily and nightly praise of the angels. He left the ultimate comfort and joy to come to earth. And he didn't come just to show his glory. He didn't come just to show how great he was, though we definitely see his glory in his life. What did he come to do? He himself says the son of man came not to be served, but what? To serve. He came to serve. He at whose feet angels fall came down from heaven and fell at the feet of his enemies to wash their feet. That's incredible. That's what an example uh, of sacrifice. And this is the mindset that we're to have towards one another, to leave whatever comforts we have, to lay down our lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters. But the problem is, if it's just an example, we need to give up, really. I don't have the joys of heaven to leave even to be able to serve. I have trouble leaving just my earthly comforts things that are destroyed in a number of years. Food, which is destroyed as you eat it. I have trouble laying those things aside just to serve others. If Christ is just an example, if he's just a model to follow, then we're in trouble because we can't follow that example. He did it with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength perfectly. But, 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 if Christ is more than an example, if he's also a substitute and a sacrifice, If he lived the perfect life that we're called to live on our behalf, and if he died the death that we deserve for our coldness towards God and towards others, then we are free to love and serve, however imperfectly we may do so. Think about this. If you're serving and sacrificing just to find personal fulfillment, just to build yourself up and feel good, well, what happens when those good feelings stop coming? you fall apart. Either you'll burn out, you'll keep going, and eventually just completely burn out, or you'll just give up. Or what about if you're serving just to be seen, just to be appreciated, just to be praised? What happens when the praise stops coming in and the criticism starts coming in? You're demolished, you're destroyed. Your entire self-worth has just been thrown away. But if your pride and joy and reason for serving is the gospel, the encouragement that we have in Christ, the comfort that we have from the love of God, the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit, then your service can go as long as you do because those things will never change. They'll never cease. 
Or to put it another way, you will never be able to truly know and really love until you know that you are fully known and deeply loved. Why? Why do I say that? Because loving other people is a risk. You can pour yourself into another person. You can give all that you have, all of your time, all of your effort, all of your money, all of your affections, all of your love. You can pour these into another person and they can take advantage of you. They can use you. They can ignore you. And finally, they can reject you. They can walk away from you. And then what have they done? They've taken your heart. They've taken your identity. They've taken your soul. And they've ripped it out of you and they've thrown it on the ground. They've destroyed you. That's the risk of love. That's the risk of loving other people. But if you know that you've been bought with a price, if you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God, if God's love is being poured into your heart daily by the Holy Spirit, how can you not overflow? How can you not give that same love to others? And then even in that, if your pride and joy is the love of God, the encouragement of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, then if you love other people, if you pour yourself into other people, if you give all your time and money and everything that you have poured into other people, even if you give all that you have and are completely rejected, you may feel a sting, but you're not crushed. You're not destroyed. You can stand up again and you can love again. Why? Because your identity is not in who you are and what you do and how people love and accept and receive it but your identity is in whose you are. It's in what he's done. And it's in how he receives you in Christ. And that can never, ever change. So two brief things by way of application and closing here. Uh, we've been talking about them already for about 25 minutes. So I'll just distill it and kind of send you out with these two things. So one, a simple command. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. As you go about your life, as you think about the way you spend your time and money, as you think about the things that you do, think about others first. As you're doing those things, you don't have to try to just live an entirely different life because you'll probably fail. Live your life, but as you're living your life, as you're doing the things that God has called you to do day by day, consider others. Turn your mind towards, oh, you know what? I'm at the store. I've got this great book. You know what? I think so-and-so is really struggling with anxiety. Let me pick up this book because I think it will help them. You know, oh, I know so-and-so really likes this little treat. Maybe I can just pick it up. And it, it, these are just little examples again. But just the point is think about others. Have this mindset of considering others more significant than yourself. And uh, when you fail and when you succeed and in, in whatever you do, the second point is know and love and rest in the gospel, the good news that he has saved you, that Christ has saved us from our selfishness by his selflessness, that he has saved us from our conceit and pride by his humility, that he has saved us from our division with each other by being cut off from the people of God, set outside the holy city to die on a hill called Golgotha, and that he has saved us from our separation from God by himself being forsaken of God as he hung on the cross bearing our sins. So have the mindset of Christ and remember the gospel. Will you join me in prayer?